At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. When we use traffic lights, see flags, sports teams, flowers, or rainbows, we're encountering vibrant colors and the feelings they invoke. From choosing the color of clothing to wear, or knowing if a piece of fruit is ripe to eat, colors play a significant role in our everyday lives. Later this hour, we'll hear about a new exhibition at Fernbank Museum on the nature of color. Plus, our series, Speaking of Art, today features Atlanta painter Winter Bell. First, the story of visual artist and musician Lonnie Holly is a testament to his need to create and triumph over adversity. A new documentary, Thumbs Up for Mother Universe, explores Lonnie Holly's life as a self-taught artist finding beauty in discarded materials and overcoming cruelty that would have destroyed most people. George King is the film's director and producer. He joins me now via Zoom, along with one of the featured guests in the film, scholar and musician Mosiki Scales. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Likewise, great being here. George, how did you first connect with Lonnie Holly? Well, I was, I had this disillusionment at the time with the contemporary art that was pouring out of New York City, which if you remember was that um, generation of young brats driving around in Bentleys and making this sort of self-referential work, which was actually of very little interest to me. Meanwhile, down here in the South was this passionate, content-driven work that was pouring out of Black artists, particularly in Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, the Carolinas, et cetera, et cetera. So this phenomenon interested me greatly, and I was sort of exploring it when I ran into Lonnie Holly. And at that point, I realized there was no point in using any of the other material I'd collected because this guy was much more interesting, much more engaging, and a, a very interesting man altogether. And so I sort of switched horses from this 
piece that, you know, I'd interviewed a lot of curators and artists and various people, and it sort of switched into, let's let Lonnie Holly tell the world about this, this art. And 22 years of his life you cover in this footage. How long did it take you to put the 95-minute documentary together? Well, that's the latter part of the, the 22 years because we were still shooting while we were editing. Because one of the things I realized was we've entered the digital realm since we started filming this project. And consequently, the viewer would have a reasonable expectation of high definition images. And so I felt it very important to film contemporary footage and to reshoot a lot of interviews actually, which, is, which I then did. When did you switch over to the digital? filming? You know, sort of as soon as cameras became available, I think, in fact, I remember wanting to shoot something, and this was probably in the early 2000s. I didn't have a digital camera, and I didn't really know anybody that did, and I discovered this librarian at UGA had one, and was also a huge fan of Lonnie, so I managed to persuade her to come over to Birmingham with me, and she allowed me to use her camera, and she had a great time getting to visit and see Lonnie at work, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a, a good trade-off. But that was the first technically digital footage we shot. But then we went on to shooting on, you know, much better cameras, red cameras and all sorts of things. Early in the film, we learn that Lonnie Holly uses found materials. He said that garbage is a part of his life, but he doesn't see it as garbage. Dumps are burial sites and contain other people's memories. I was hoping each of you might comment on the use of metaphor. The, here's a man who just seemed to breathe metaphor for the found objects, for his views on life. Masiki, would you start? Because you mention in the film that the memories found in those lost objects, in those discarded objects, are memories of the energy of the people who used them. Yes. There is a a well-respected griot historian from Mali who states that all African art speaks, that African art speaks and it's an emanation of the artist that creates it. And I think about Lani Hali's pieces in that regard as them having his particular ashe and very much in the African tradition and the diaspora, the notion of kind of making something out of nothing. Grandmother is able to make a pot of soup and you didn't see any ingredients in the cupboard or you the use of found objects and finding value in them and in several of my trips into west africa very little gets thrown away and so i look at lani's work as being in that continuum um, within the african diaspora the the use of hangers the use of wires the use of sandstone the, the plastic arts or the arts that he's relying on, he uses them to tell a story. And it's a story that many of us may not have seen had he not pulled all of these pieces together to tell his particular narrative, to tell his story. 
And so it's appreciated in that way. And so I don't, I look at it in the same spirit as jazz music or the blues, that innovation in a space where a group of people may have very little available to them, but what they present in turn ends up becoming very deep going and spiritual. And I see that expressed in Lonnie Holly's work. Or, or the, the, the word ashe I used in the documentary that, that uh, it's a Yoruba word, which suggests something is filled with the, the vital energy of either that person or group of people or, or spirit-filled energy within the art pieces. And he makes mention of that spiritual connection and feeling the ancestors watching over him. It would be easy to think that he'd lose faith or not be able to muster any faith given some of the brutality he experienced as a child and even a young man. George, were you surprised at the absence of bitterness on the artist's part? Absolutely. I could, it's one of the things that that drew me to Lonnie is that you would have an expectation that given the experiences that he's had, that he would be dealing with violence, possibly dealing with trying to numb the pain with alcohol or drugs or something like this. And some, and also that, that there would be an anger. And he is, I, I, I've never understood this, except I think the art feeds him and, and heals him actually. Actually, I initially met George conducting oral history interviews and some of the elders, some of the African-American elders I met in the South, particularly the men talked about all the, much of the trauma that they'd experienced. And I feel like from what I've seen, it seems as if this work for, to use George's word, is healing for him. It seems like it allows for this trauma to have a place to express itself and not so much expressing itself in anger, but as an outlet for him to express what's going on with him. And I feel like that can be heard within his music as well as seen within the visual pieces that he's created. Very much so. Kidnapped at a year and a half and ending up with an abusive couple accused of stealing and sent to that horrid Meg school, and then eventually finding his mama. I mean, it's almost unbelievable that one could surmount those setbacks, much less triumph over them. But the film brings out just how he does. And Masiki, I think the point you make about how creating art is cathartic, if you will, it's something he absolutely must do. And while he is creating this as he's telling stories and making comments himself, we get to take in the beauty of it. If you could talk a bit about his creative process, would you 
tell us what you tried to capture in how Lonnie Holly puts a piece of art together. Yes, certainly. It's actually fascinating to watch because after a while, you start to see the methodology, you know, at work. And he collects all these things because they grab his, in his interest for one reason or another, maybe a, maybe a texture or a color or some aspects to the materials that he's, he's picking up. And then he kind of lives in this environment surrounded by this stuff. So when he starts making something, he's clearly got an idea in his mind and he will put something together, some arrangement of these, of these artifacts, these objects. And then you see his eyes start to rove around the, the vicinity because he's looking for something. He's looking for something that's gonna fit into what he's already created. And then sometimes he'll get up and wander around depending on how large an area he's, uh, he's sort of working in. And then, you know, he grabs something and he weaves it into the work in some way or not, or decides that it's the wrong, it's the wrong thing. But it's, it's a fascinating process to watch and to recognize that he really venerates these materials. He's very interested in the materials themselves. And he says, and he talks about this in the film, that black history wasn't recorded and black objects weren't collected in the same way, of course, that white society, you know, collects things that are into museums and things like this. So he says that actually it's the trash heaps, it's the garbage dumps, that's where our history is. And he mines it and then puts together these works. Of course, we should also mention for the, for the listeners that Lonnie is also a musician. He also paints and works in just about any art form you can think of. I've never seen him knitting anything, but my goodness, you know, he's done photography, he's done video uh, and on and on and on. He's just a creative tour de force. Absolutely. And we will get to the music. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with director-producer George King and Atlanta musician, scholar, Mosiki Scales. We've been discussing George King's new documentary, Thumbs Up for Mother Universe, stories from the life of Lonnie Holly. Masiki, in the film, you say that in the last 500 years, there have been Europeans and then everyone else. Those who have the ability to control define, and they define for us what is high art and what is not. Would you expand upon that statement in the context of Lonnie Holly's art and this documentary. Sure. I think that we're socialized in an environment that is shaped by slavery, that has been shaped by colonialism. And the idea that, that Lonnie Holly's art, an art that would look similar to, to his art, typically would lay, be labeled folk art or art that may not have equal value to other art, or particularly art that emanates from the European world. 
And I think that this is a challenge that we see in academia, even with dealing with the last four or 500 years, that there's this assumption that this experience that emanates from the African world must automatically be at a lower rung as it relates to culture and expression. I think that music is an excellent example for us to dispel that myth that when we think about the, the early the plantation life and we think about the planters and the privilege that the planters had in terms of free time, when you think about these two different groups, those who were enslaved on plantations had very little free time and those who were enslaving had free time and could have gone into parlors and, and played pianos and different instruments. But when we compare music created by these two different groups, those in the planter class, they pale in comparison. If we were to explore the spirituals, blues, several different types of jazz, ragtime music, um, all the way up to techno, house and hip hop, that it is a profound development in the art, in the realm of the arts, particularly music, by these African descendants that were living in the one of the most challenging times in human history, if not the most challenging time, and yet still embody the spirit of creativity. And I see Lani within that lineage of creativity. So there's not much, in my estimation, there's not much music created by Europeans during that time period in North America where the world takes notice. But when we compare that to, again, spirituals and all of the music that has become known as an American art form, well, even at that time, those individuals did not have the political agency to even claim their works. I mean, let's remember that when jazz first emerges, even newspapers like the New York Times describes it as music that is uncivilized, that could take us back to the jungle, on and so forth. So it's in that same tradition. And that's not, that's newspapers in that time period. And even in terms of the academy, terms like blue notes speak to this notion of an overreach in terms of assessing information that one does not understand. Because for many of the Blacks in the, during the emergence of the blues and jazz would never describe those notes as blue notes because they were not an aberration from just the sounds that they were hearing from them. They hail from a West African tonal system that people brought with them. So all of that to say, I see Lonnie Holly's work in that same tradition that the world takes notice of that music the world is taking notice of lonnie holly's music as well as art and it's no need to impose a hierarchy on it because it's most definitely high art and to george's point lonnie holly just seems to have been born to create across disciplines. The music is as improvisatory as his visual art, yet when one experiences it, it, it delivers meaning, if not within the typical structure we're accustomed to. Would you speak about how he was engaged in music while creating visual art? Either of you. Sure, well, I'll pick that up, certainly. If you're around Lonnie, you notice very quickly 
but he actually vocalizes quite a lot, singing, humming, whistling, while he's working or while he's wandering around looking for things. And it's very interesting. He's, so when he performs, it's basically he's, he's doing what he's doing all the time anyway, except it's a little more focused in the sense that he thinks about what he's gonna perform rather than just you know letting whatever feeling flow, is flowing through him at that moment in time. So he and his manager, Matt Arnett, usually hunker down and kind of discuss what he's gonna play and if other musicians are involved. But of course, what he's gonna play can change totally when he actually lays his fingers on the keyboard or opens his mouth. So um, it is always extraordinary. He never plays the same song twice. Someone once requested, I believe this is actually the mayor of Porto in, in Portugal, said he was a, really a big fan of, of Lonnie's out, first album, I think it was, and said, would he, would he play, you know, he was looking forward to hearing him play this particular cut. And Lonnie said, but I already did that. <laughs> and so, but that's kind of how he thinks of it. His work is totally original. So if you go see a concert, if you go hear Lonnie play, you'll be getting something that no one else ever has heard in the past and no one ever will in the future. It's going, it's totally uh, unique to that moment. Masiki, I read that you provided four music cuts for the film soundtrack and you were an advisor in the editing process. Would you talk a bit more about the collaborative process in this film? Well, one, I'm appreciative that, that George added me to that process. I think it was just a matter of us sitting and, and trying to decide which song captured these different spaces the best, the different movements in the film. I'm still kind of taken with what what George said about uh, never playing the same song twice because it reminds me so much of Scott Joplin and to some extent, Fela Kuti. So that, that process was just, was an interesting process. And I think that uh, working with those different scenes, just trying to come up with what, because Lonnie's music is unique. And I, we didn't want to create anything that, that would take away from that direction. So just trying to find what suited these different scenes the best, a bit of improvisation, I guess. We've spoken about his need to make art constantly. He was not out to sell art and become wealthy from it, but he makes a remark in the film that I thought was very powerful when he said, without someone caring about the art, what's it worth? And I, I was hoping you would talk about the role of Bill Arnett in Lonnie Holly's life, George. He and Lonnie actually traveled together a great deal through the South. And Lonnie, of course, was extraordinarily helpful in the process as a black man, because very often the response in the uh, black community to a white person suddenly arriving in their midst is, 
what's going to happen now? You know, what what imposition will be placed upon us, et cetera, et cetera. So Lonnie was, uh, and also of course got to discover all this stuff himself as they drove around the South. And so that's how, for example, Thornton Dial, who is now one of the most eminent artists of the 20th century, you could say in the, U in the US certainly, was also an, a self-taught artist living in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. Lonnie introduced him to Bill and he introduced him to Bill because Lonnie at one time was dating Dial's cousin and had visited the house and met Dial. And Dial had sort of showed him a fishing, I think it was a fishing lure or something that he'd made. And Lonnie was just fascinated by this thing. And so he sort of sought him out. Eventually, Dial kind of opened up and, and, and sort of led him into his world. And in turn, Lonnie introduced Bill Arnett and, and Bill acted as really as the person who sort of put them on the map in terms of mainstream culture and, uh, you know, acted both kind of as a curator, but also a marketer to try and get the word out through some books and various other publications and, and exhibitions. One of which, of course, was during the Olympics, Souls Grown Deep, which was really displayed this remarkable collection that uh, they had put together, which is now being, as I understand it, much of it is distributed to museums nationally. So, And the Souls Grown Deep Foundation donated those works to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, among other museums. But it's a very powerful moment in the film you capture when Lonnie Holly is ascending the front steps of the Met. What was it like being with him in that moment? Well, I will say this briefly, which is that I had this idea of trying to uh, recreate the scene from Rocky where he runs up the steps. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I thought we shot it from, from the same angles, basically. And I thought, you know, you won't we're not, we're not going to sort of exaggerate it and have him sort of doing fist pumps or anything, but I just thought somebody might pick up on it. In fact, I kind of abandoned that idea somewhere in the editing process. But, but Lonnie was, I mean, Lonnie didn't have a lot of encouragement and support for many, many years. And I remember him literally finding him in tears on more than one occasion when his work had not got into an exhibit you know, an exhibit titled something like Black Sculptors of Birmingham, you know, you think, well, there really aren't that very many of them. How could they possibly leave Lonnie out? But he saw that as, you know, as yet another rebuke, yet another kind of insult in a way, a slime. And so to have his work in the Met, you know, arguably one of the most prestigious institutions in, in, in America, I think he was very excited and honored. But I think he also thought, yeah, this is where I belong. Yes. And you mentioned the sculpture. The piece in the Smithsonian, um, I think it's titled Baby Being Born. Sure. Doesn't get much more profound. It, exactly. And he says, symbolic of me being born in the art world, you know. And yet 
he has these layers. I mean, physically within the sculpture, within his creations, and the, the meanings. Masiki, what was your response to that work that depicted the baby on the very top? Is that the sandstone? Yes. Oh, well, is that the scene where he has to talk to those, the, the guys that come up in the hard hats? and Yeah, who really scared me at first. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, what are we witnessing here? And it, it was not the worst at all. Right. It, it was somewhat humorous, that scene. But <laughs> Would you describe, that, set up our listeners, set us up for the scene and, and then what he creates? Well, the, I felt like the, the scene with the baby and, and that particular image, as I guess gets revealed later in the film, the, this special connection to his mother. And when I think about like the points in the film where he gets emotional, especially after a life of trauma and then the family reunion, it feels like we're experiencing a full range of emotions. And I think that it was important for me to witness that because I feel that particularly black men in this society and men of his particular age group are sometimes limited to the emotions that are expressed. There could be anger, but usually vulnerability is not one that is expressed. So I saw that piece. Um, and even the, the language of thumbs up to mother universe speaks to a very ancient African concept of, of mother and child. And that being a very sacred image from the most ancient days in Africa and to see the continuity there and Please mistake me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he also paint that on his van, George? He he. It's difficult to see what he didn't paint on his van. It's uh, it, it was it was, and he had all these cars over the years that people would give him, because Lonnie really lived on the edge, very marginally for many many years, and he really hasn't changed his lifestyle very much today. Even though he is celebrated and recognized, he hasn't changed that much. Okay. Well, I I was hoping to get to the point of Lonnie's remark about dumps being burial sites, and he honors the unwanted materials. Taking that some decades forward to when you feature a presentation he's giving at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. He's telling students, young students, about the importance of reusing materials. He has become the ultimate spokesperson for environmentalism in art, I think. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's very interesting indeed. You have to consider that, you know, I think that what separates artists from the rest of the population very often is time. Most of us don't have the time to actually devote to thinking about and making art. And so Lonnie, uh, as a child, the way he, he kind of 
dealt with with his lot, which was, you know, essentially being brutalized by a series of, of people, was to, you know, live inside his head and create his own world and try to live in, in that. And, and in, in doing that, you know, he, he, he's created all these amazing, amazing things. I love his remark that art helps you see better and we should bathe in culture. Culture should be our bubble bath. This seems to be the great takeaway from his life. Or what do you think, Mosiki, is the greatest thing you've learned from being close to Lonnie Holly? Oh, I feel like the greatest thing that I've learned is, is the notion of improvisation innovation and the idea that that nothing is trash that even somehow that which looks like waste could perhaps grow our vegetables <laughs> so i think that it's it's amazing to see such dynamic works of art created by what could be labeled trash that he's climbing into dumpsters, getting a big wheel, and you end up seeing it in a museum and it makes sense, or a mask is created or a hanger that's turned a particular way. And so <laughs> that is just, it's just amazing. And I think that it's a reminder to, to stay proactive, to stay active. Like George said, many artists have the time or, or make the time to create this art that it is possible and within our reach. And so if Lonnie Holly can do this with recycled objects, it is also allowing for me to see what's possible for me, what's within my reach. How is Lonnie Holly's health? Well, I don't think it's a secret that uh, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer a number of years ago. And that as, as somebody, as he says in the film, that he was, you know, given two and a half years to live. Fortunately, he's gone way beyond that. And so he's on some medications which have enabled him to still to still be with us and to still make art and music. Beyond that, his body took a lot when he was a child, you know, and he's, I know he has problems with his feet. I know he has problems with his legs where he was beaten and things literally today you know, those scars, unfortunately, are still a reality. So from that point of view, and I know sort of hopping around the world requires an enormous amount of energy. Just walking through the uh, through London airport, he was complaining about last time about just how far he had to walk. And like I said, walking is, unfortunately, is can be painful for him. So... My advice was insist on one of those carts. <laughs> insist yes. they bring one <laughs> and jump on that. So. Has he seen the film in its final form? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. No, no, I would never release any film without, you know, especially in terms of Lonnie and I, because we, we you know, we've had a relationship now for, God, maybe close to 30 years, at least, you know, 27, probably up there, 28. And so we're, we hang out, we're friends, we spend time together, we talk about art, we go look at art sometimes. 
these these kinds of things. What was his response to the final version? Well, he he wept, actually. I mean, in a way, it's a retelling of a great deal of pain and anguish, but also of the comfort of his family and his children. So I think very many mixed emotions, but I know the first time he saw it, in fact, I mean, he may be, of course, he, you know, the film is maybe more relevant to him than any anybody else. One of the reasons that Lonnie liked me coming around, I think, in the early days, was that Lonnie makes things and having finished making it, he puts it to one side because it's the making of things that probably interests him more. Although, I mean, he's proud of and very excited about the work that he makes, but it's the actual act of making it that where I think he finds the great, this great satisfaction and sense of renewal and, and, and healing. So having someone who documents that process by photographing or videotaping or filming what he's just made is exactly what Lonnie wants because now it exists in the world in some way. Because sometimes, you know, he makes art and just leaves it where he's made it, in a wood, you know, or side of a river or something. And uh, I found things and asked him, I said, you know, did you make that? He showed me this whole series of work that somebody had done with materials. And he, he claimed it was this homeless man who had ended up dying under poor circumstances in Birmingham. But I'm thinking, this looks like what you made, Lonnie. And to this day, I'm still not quite sure whether this was an alter ego or this was his work or anyway, I didn't, it was one of those moments. So yeah, so the, the act of my documenting his work proved to be of great value to him, which was why he would welcome me back and <laughs> welcome me back. And we kept going because Frankly, I tried to raise money to, to finish the film a few times and got turned down. And, uh, you know, and frankly, I thought, well, this is Lonnie's experience. He's been rejected a great deal in his life and, and in part as an artist. In fact, I mean, every artist is, is rejected in their lives at some point or other, that's for sure. But, but for Lonnie, the, the, the idea that this was in fact existed somewhere as a record was very important to him. I was very happy to oblige. Well, I think many viewers will be equally happy that you made the film, and it's a very powerful documentary, an important story that's told. George King, Masiki Scales, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you director-producer George King, and scholar-musician Masiki Scales. Thumbs up for Mother Universe, Stories from the Life of Lonnie Holly, is streaming through February 19th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... My conversation with Fernbank curator Maria Moreno will discuss Fernbank's new exhibition, The Nature of Color, amplifying Atlanta 
This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. When we think of traffic lights, flags, sports teams, flowers, or rainbows, we think of vibrant colors and the feelings they invoke. From choosing the color of clothing to wear, or knowing if a piece of fruit is ripe enough to eat, Colors play a significant role in our everyday lives. Even figurative terms, yellow-bellied, out of the blue, green with envy, or seeing red, reflect how we use color to understand emotion. The new Nature of Color exhibition at Fernbank Museum of Natural History, explores the science of color, how colors make us feel, how they are perceived across cultures, and how animals use color to help them survive. Maria Moreno is program manager at Fernbank and curator of the Nature of Color exhibition. She joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, hello. Tell us, please, what inspired this show on the Nature of Color? Well, a lot of things, right? So just like you were mentioning, the the, the feelings and the meaning of color, it's really important. And also, uh, the time of the year, it's very, very close to springtime. So people are going to be able to relate what they're seeing in the exhibition to the changing colors out in our forest. Indeed, beginning in winter, when colors in nature are muted, mm-hmm. and then the show continuing into spring, a season bursting with vibrant colors. Maria, would you tell us about the interactive components of this show? Sure. So we have a couple of interactive components that are going to be showcased in our exhibition, including uh, shadow explorations, prism exploration, and color and vision animations, just to, to name a few. And also people will be able to see models and really connect what the exhibition is is saying it is showing is it's making us feel with those interactive components so it seems that you are blending science and 
art together. Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. I mean, color itself can be, it is very influential in science and natural sciences. So, so yes, definitely. What can we learn about the meanings associated with color and how they are perceived across cultures? Well, that is what I'm most excited actually to see in the exhibit um, as an anthropologist. For example, the color red. It's a very powerful color. Brides in India use red because it, it indicates, you know, prosperity and fertility. And somewhere else in the world, it may have a completely different meaning. So just how even something that we all see almost the same, like primary colors, have different meanings across the world. Would you give us some more examples? Sure. For example, even during our our human history, how the meaning of color has changed many, many years ago. You know, pink wasn't associated with girls. It was actually associated with boys and blue was associated with girls. So even how throughout our history, those perceptions of colors have changed. There is also an exhibition within the nature of color, spotlighting work of the Brazilian photographer Angelica Das, whose pieces show a range of human skin colors. What do these pictures reveal or challenge about socially constructed notions of race? So it's really to to celebrate, right? To to celebrate the human diversity and the beauty of all humans, you know, with skin tone being the the forefront of this exhibition and the beauty of, of people from all over the world. And I think it fits very, very well with with this exhibition because we are part of nature and you know we we we're humans we're 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 humankind and i think it'll be a great way especially now uh, more than ever to really look at ourselves and celebrate the beauty that is being from maybe another part of the world and having a different color skin tone do you have a favorite color i do uh, my favorite color is purple Mine too. Why is purple (laughs) your favorite color? For me, it brings a lot of peace. It it calms me down. It's a very soothing color for me. So I think I like it because it calms me down and it helps me sit back and reflect kind of in stressful situations. Hmm. Maria Moreno, thank you very much for talking with us about the nature of color. Thank you. Maria Moreno, Program Manager at Fernbank Museum and curator of the exhibition The Nature of Color, on view through May 7th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we spotlight Atlanta painter Winter Bell in our series Speaking of Art. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is 
City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. It's time now for our series, Speaking of Art, where we hear from local visual artists in their own words. What's up? I'm Winterbell, and I'm a painter here in Atlanta. And I recently received my BFA in painting from SCAD. And I like to describe my work as a journey of self-knowledge through mixed media and collage. Oftentimes, I do self-portraiture, similar to the, the, the concept of traditional African mask, where they use this figure to represent, you know, an aspect of nature, an idea, or even a historical event. So I kind of use myself in that same nature. Art has always been an aspect of my life. You know, they used to tell me stories when I was a baby, they, they had to hide the markers because I used to draw all over the walls. But I don't really remember a time in my life where I wasn't pursuing or practicing art, even if it was just for leisure. And, you know, that led me to even get into an art academy in high school that helped me get work into a high school exhibit for the High Museum. You know what I mean? I draw a lot of inspiration from history as well as mythology. You know what I mean? Something concrete balanced out with something abstract and more imaginative. And I feel like my ancestors really mastered the art of storytelling, using figures, using geometry, and different iconography to really tell a story with all, all within a picture frame, within a segment of a wall even. So I try to do the same thing and tell a story and going back to the self-portraiture. I can only see the world through my eyes, so I use myself as as that window to tell a story or to to bring up a concept or even, you know what I mean, share an emotion. I feel like I really didn't choose Atlanta as a home. You know what I mean? Atlanta chose me. I've been here since I was born, and it's always just, this place has always resonated, exposing me to the culture, exposing me to all different types of people, even though... I've always been in this one place. I've met people across the country, across the world. And it's always, it's not even like a place of comfort. It's a place of challenge, a place where it's always room for growth and development, no matter what. And that's one reason why I love Atlanta and why I see myself flourishing here. You can follow me on Instagram at winter.bell, and that's winter with a Y, not an I. Or if you want to see my work in person, I have a few pieces featured in an upcoming group exhibition called Her Voicings at the Black Art in America Gallery out in East Point. So come check me out. Thank you. Atlanta painter Winter Bell. You can find more information about Bell's artwork on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. Atlanta native Janelle M. Williams is releasing her debut novel, Gone Like Yesterday. The book explores the majestic and haunting experience of being a black woman in America. The story follows two women, Zara and Sammy, who are both drawn to the songs of gypsy moths. When their paths cross, Zara's brother goes missing, and the two drive from New York to Atlanta in search of him. Along the way, they discover what the moths and their ancestors want with them, 
and what to do about their futures. Here's Williams speaking about the inspiration for her novel. There are two main ideas I was grappling with when I started writing Gone Like Yesterday. The first is sort of this tightrope between activism and freedom, between becoming your ancestors' wildest dreams and just relaxing and loving life. As a Black woman who loves and cares about Black people, I wondered if it was truly possible to serve the Black community and reserve space for peace for your own nuclear family. The second idea came from my job where I often help high school seniors write their college essays. That writing process can be messy, lengthy, and vulnerable making. And I worked with one teen who mentioned a sit-in at her school, a school I was already familiar with for less than savory reasons. After that, I became simultaneously repulsed by and completely consumed with the sit-in's news story. The book, Gone Like Yesterday, is published by Phoebe Robinson's imprint, Tiny Reparations Books, and comes out tomorrow. Author Janelle Williams will give a talk at Karis Books on Thursday. More information is available on the website karisbooksandmore.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we learn about the new dating app, Hatched just in time for Valentine's Day. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm-hmm. WABE. <laughs> The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.